0: Next Sunday, after worship, after the benediction, we'll go to the Beacon and we'll learn about the outreach team. And I'm looking forward to you being there with us. The core group will be there. We'll be serving a light lunch and we want you to join us. Turn with me now, if you would, to Matthew chapter 27, the passage that Lori has just read for us. Matthew chapter 27. Most of us that grew up in the generation where we still memorized poetry when we were in school. I don't know if they do a lot of memorizing anymore. Um, I'm sure there's some that's done. Had to learn a poem that started like this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, etc., etc., by Robert Frost. The poem was titled, The Road Less Traveled. At the end of the poem, it says... Two roads diverged into yellow wood, and I, I took the one less traveled. And that has made all the difference. You see, in life, we are constantly challenged to choose paths. We're constantly challenged to pick the way that we are going to go. What route looks best? Sometimes it's easy to take the road that everybody else takes. Sometimes we choose and tend to take the road that is not as traveled as everyone else chooses. Jesus himself said, there are two ways. One is wide and broad. Many follow it, and it leads straight to destruction. But there's another path and another gate that is narrow, and very few find it, but it leads to life eternal. If you are here this morning, either you have already decided that's the path that God would have you choose or you're at least considering that path, or you wouldn't be taking an hour or more of your time this morning to be with us here in worship. So today I wanna talk about paths that we see in chapter 27, verses 11 to 26 of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has already been taken before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. We talked about it in Bible study this morning. He has been declared a blasphemer. The penalty for blasphemy is to be stoned to death. But because they were under Roman rule, the Jewish authorities did not have the right to take a human life. They had to go to the Roman authorities and get their permission. And so we come to verse 11 after a little interruption talking about the role of Judas and Judas repenting of what he had done when he betrayed Christ. And we get to verse 11, and now Jesus is standing before the governor. So I want to take a few minutes and just walk through the passage. Let's just kind of pick some gems out of this wonderful set of verses, and then we want to go back and look at three paths, the path of Pilate, the path of the people, and the path of Christ. You notice it says in verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor, and Pontius Pilate asked him a very interesting question. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? You see, the Roman government didn't care whether he was a blasphemer or not. That was a religious issue. They didn't care whether he had broken some kind of religious laws. All they wanted to know is, are you an insurrectionist? Are you going to cause trouble for Rome? Because Rome does not put up with troublemakers. If Rome was known for anything, they were known for having a very short fuse when it came to people who tried to sow insurrection. Imagine the expanse of the Roman Empire in those days stretching over three-quarters of the known world of the time. In order to maintain that empire, there had to be absolute unflinching force on anyone who would try to sow insurrection. So Pilate asked Jesus a very political question. Are you the king of the Jews? Now what's interesting about that question is, he was not a Jew himself, he was a Gentile, right? And that question or that title has only been used one other time in Matthew's gospel back in Matthew chapter 2 when another group of gentiles came to a man named Herod we call them the wise men or the magi and they said where is he that has been born the king of the Jews isn't it funny that the gentiles recognized his role before his own jewish people did and Jesus gives the same answer he's already given twice first he gave it to Judas when Judas said lord is it i that's going to betray you And then, when Caiaphas said, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And now to Pilate, he said, you have said this. Kind of a passive sort of affirmation, but saying, you are the one that is acknowledging this, and I'm not sure you really understand what it means. And so it says that, He was being accused, the chief priests, the elders were standing there they were throwing all of his accusations against him and yet he did not answer a word. And Pilate said, don't you hear all the things that are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge. In other words, Jesus did not follow the typical rules of court. To this day, I've never been in court except to give testimony one time and I was put on a jury list and didn't go to jury. But I know the way it works is I watch Perry Mason and L.A. Law and a few of those other things. The prosecution brings their case, and then the defense is able then to defend the case or defend their their person that's being accused. So the prosecution comes. They bring their accusations to Pilate, who is the judge. Jesus is supposed to have an opportunity to rebut those accusations, and Jesus says nothing. Nothing. He sits quietly by And already Pilate has been with Jesus enough, we find out from John's gospel, some of the conversation that Pilate had with Jesus, that Pilate recognizes that this man is not an insurrectionist. This man is not a troublemaker. If anything, he's almost laughable in this peacefulness. And Pilate is greatly amazed at Jesus because he doesn't defend himself against his accusation, which basically says if you don't defend yourself, we'll have to find you guilty. If you don't say something to defend you, if you don't give some reason for why these charges have been brought, we're going to have to take their their word. Well, most commentators believe between verse 14 and 15 is where we have the trip that Jesus has sent to Herod. Some of you remember from Luke's gospel, he goes to Herod and Herod questions him and then sends him back to Pilate. And then in verse 15, it says at the festival, this is the Passover, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner that they wanted. Now, you see, Pilate's already figured out that he's being used by these religious leaders. He knows that Jesus is not a troublemaker. He knows that Jesus is not an insurrectionist. He's not a rebel. And by the way, do the Jews really care about insurrectionists? No. They just want to get rid of this guy because they're jealous of him. And so, it says in verse 16, at that particular time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. This was a man who had been in an insurrection. He was known, he had murdered someone. He had been convicted of murder. And the penalty for murder is what? Crucifixion, especially if you murder a Roman citizen. There were at least three of them that were arrested, and three crosses had been set up ready to crucify these three insurrectionists. The middle cross was for the leader of the insurrection, a man by the name of Barabbas. And on either side of him were two of his cohorts. Pilate knows that Jesus was a popular teacher. He had heard about him, I'm sure. You don't run an area like Judea and not know what's going on among the peoples that are there. He's probably heard some of the stories about Jesus' miraculous healings and other things, and so he's thinking, you know what, this is these Roman, I mean these Jewish leaders, but the people probably love him, so I'll give them the chance to release him. So he says, Who is it that you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called? Messiah. And Matthew explains, he knew they'd handed him over because of envy. And meanwhile, while they are deliberating, his wife sends him a message and says, whatever you do, don't mess with this man. Not only is he an innocent man, he is a righteous man. I've suffered terribly from him. We know about dreams in Matthew's gospel. Dreams in Matthew's gospel are always messages from God to people. So she comes and warns him, treat this man carefully. The pilot doesn't listen to her. Meanwhile, the chief priests and the elders are persuading the crowds to ask for Barabbas to execute Jesus. You got to know what they're saying. They're saying, look, you want someone that can help overthrow Rome? You want a leader? Get a man who's willing to risk his life to murder a Roman. That's who we want leading us. Not this mealy mouth, love your neighbor as you love yourself kind of guy. What has he ever done for you? And the people who would listen to whatever the word was at the time said okay yeah yeah we want Barabbas maybe he can help us start an insurrection start a revolt against the Roman government and so the governor asked him in verse 21 which of the two do you want me to release for you Barabbas they answered and Pilate's going okay now come on this guy is innocent what do you want me to do with him And the leaders had stirred the crowd up, and they said, crucify him. Put him on Barabbas' cross. Jesus died for Barabbas. He said, why? Why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting, crucify him all the more. And Pilate saw he was getting nowhere. They were starting to riot. They were so incensed and so excited and so riotous that they were screaming. And he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And their response is, if we are wrong, may his blood be on us and on our children. If we are at fault, may the penalty be ours. Then he released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged, which we all know was not just a gentle little 40 lashes with a whip. It was a scourge with long leather strips, and on the end of each leather strip was tied either a piece of metal, a piece of glass, or a small stone, and they had no limit of thirty lashes, 39 lashes. They could whip the man as long as they had the energy in their arms to swing the whip. And people often died just from the scourging. He had him scourged and handed him over to be crucified. Three paths. The first one is the path of Pilate. What was it that motivated Pilate to take the path he did? He was the leader. He represented Caesar himself in the province of Judea. He was Rome. His word was inviolable law. All he had to do is say, this man is not guilty. I'm sending him home. That's all he had to do. But he didn't. He pandered to the religious leaders. He pandered to the crowd. He did everything he could to wash his hands of guilt. And in the end, turned over a man that he knew to be innocent. He knew to be righteous to suffer. Why? You see, the power, the path of Pilate is the path of power. The path of position. The path of possessions. Pilate light his role. To use a phrase I heard Martha Ward say to me one time about something, they said it was an easy gig compared to a lot of places that you could serve. Pilate liked the power that he had. He liked the way that he was treated. He liked his possessions. And so he was willing to go against his own better judgment in order to be able to have some peace. That is the path of Pilate the path of opting away from what is known to be right, what is known to be just, what is known to be fair, what is known to be righteous, and to turn instead to what is self-pleasing by power, position, possessions, all the things that cry out to us, especially 21 centuries later in a place like the United States of America. But what about the people? What was their path? Did they want power? No. Did they want possessions? Not necessarily. Did they want positions? No. But what they did want was someone who would lead them the way they wanted to be leaded. They wanted a Messiah. Oh my, did they ever want a Messiah. They'd been praying for one ever since the Romans had come in and taken over their land. They prayed for a Savior that would come and lead them to fight against Rome. And you see, the reason they could not recognize Jesus for who he was, because it was something that someone told me that day that I had not even thought about until I recognized the fact that it wasn't that they had the wrong convictions, the people had no convictions at all. They didn't know who Jesus was supposed to be. They had their preconceived ideas. Their path was the path of self-gratification. We want what we want. It was a path of felt needs. We know what we need. Give us what we need. Give us what we want. We don't want a man like that. We want a man like Barabbas, a man that's strong. Who do you choose? The man that's willing to kill somebody to get what he wants? Or the man who says, Love your enemies, do good to those who persecute me. Are you kidding me? We don't want that little shepherd boy, David. We want Saul, the tall, scrapping young man. We want the Samsons of the world. Because they'll give us what we want, what we need. You see, there were so many different views. Actually, some translations, and I don't know, some of you may have a footnote in your notes that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. Now, Jesus was not the name it is today. Jesus was just a very common name in those days. Actually, it was the, this is the Greek form of the word Joshua, the name Joshua. Lots of people were named that. But isn't it ironic that Matthew tells us there were two men that the people had to choose between, and both of them were named Jesus. One was Jesus Bar Abbas, Bar means son, Abbas means father or teacher, and the other was Jesus, the son of God. Well, we see which one they chose. That was the path of the people, the path where there were no convictions. There was no solid understanding of who the Messiah should be. It's just, give us what we want. Twenty-one centuries later, we live in a world that is all about what we want, what we think we deserve what we think we need, as if no one can know better than me what I need. But what was the path of Christ? The path of Christ was the path of courage. You see it. It's evidenced in the way Jesus responded. The fact that he did not try to defend himself. He did not try to speak back against those who, and we saw that even if you were in Bible study this morning, when he was before Caiaphas. After he spoke the scripture to them and quoted from Daniel chapter 7, they began to spit on him and slap him. And he did not respond. He did not try to defend himself, did not try to argue with them. He stood there knowing that silence meant conviction, knowing that silence meant execution. Why? Because he was a masochist? Because he wanted to be punished? No, 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 no. Because he knew that this was God's plan. He knew that the plan of God was that he would give his life as a ransom for every sinner who had ever lived and ever would live. And that includes the man now speaking to you and every one of you who are listening to the sound of my voice. Jesus knew this was God's plan. He knew that God was ultimately and eternally good and could only be good. And so he yielded himself to his father's plan, even after having prayed just the night before, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the father said, Amen. And so Jesus found the courage in knowing that his father's plan was always good and righteous and to be followed. And so I ask us today, which path will we choose? Now for those of us who are followers of Christ, for those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus and are following him, sometimes years ago, decades ago, we decided to follow the path of wherever Jesus leads us, we will go. But, every now and then, we find ourselves in tough situations. We find ourselves in places where the world says, look, you don't have to go along, just stay quiet. Just don't, just look the other way. And we begin to think, well, if I don't do that, I, I can lose my job, and I, I got the wife, and I got my kids, and... I got my house payment, and I got my car payment. And I, I just need to just look away. I won't do anything. I won't be a part of this, but I'll just uh, kind of turn an eye and let it go by. Because we love our position. Oh, yeah, you think it's easy to be an employee? You ought to try being the boss. There are things that have to be done, and I don't like it, but this is just the way the world works, and you just have to do it, because otherwise, they push you aside. power, positions, possessions. These things call out to us. And we, just like Pontius Pilate, will fall prey to the temptation to follow another path other than the path of courage. Or, we follow the path of the crowd. We know what we want. We know what we think is best for us. We know what we need. Now God... You said, ask and it shall be given to you. Well, this is what I need, so I need you to give it to me. And God tells us, listen, you don't know as well as I do what you need. And you say, well, I know better than anybody else. I'm the one living it. And don't even think you can tell me that you've never at least been tempted to do that. We all have. I have. We all have. We get caught in a situation and we think we know what's best for us and we cry out to God for what we want. And when he doesn't give it, we get angry, we get rebellious, we close ourselves off to him, we shut ourselves down. When he says, why don't you trust me? And you see, the reason that happens is because we forget our convictions. We forget who Christ really is. In this story in Matthew's gospel, there were the choice of two Jesuses. How many Jesuses do we have to choose from today? The Jesus of Joel Osteen and Ms. Myers? The Jesus of the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses? You know what the Mormons' mantra is? As you are now, so once was God. As God is now, someday you may be. Is that the Jesus that we want? Do we want the Jesus of the Dalai Lama? The Jesus of the Muslims? Do we want the Jesus of modern culture? I'd just like to thank the big man upstairs for helping me score all those points tonight in the game. Or Pamela Anderson who emblazoned across her chest, Jesus is my homeboy. Is that the Jesus that we affirm and that we follow? No! But boy, sometimes it sure is tempting. I saw an ad, and I'm sorry, I should have taped it. I saw an ad just yesterday, something coming on, I think it's Channel 5, is it tonight? Something about sprouts. It's about working with kids from a variety of religions, and says, "You know what? We have a whole lot more in common than we have different. And we do have a lot in common. Don't get me wrong, but the idea is, it doesn't matter what 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 religion you have, what you believe. It's it's all the same anyway." I think it's tonight at ten. I'm going to see if I can't find it and turn on and just see. You see, this is what the world is telling us. Oh, Jesus isn't the kind of person who would ever say, "You have to follow me, or else you're going to be separated from God forever." Surely that's not the Jesus you believe in, is it? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. But so often we are tempted if we do not stand firm on our convictions, lovingly, humbly, but firmly on what we believe from God's word to be truth. We will fall prey to the swaying of the crowd, or at least be tempted to. Now, what about those of us who have not yet committed our lives to follow Christ? you love the Bible, you think Jesus is a great teacher, a wonderful person, maybe even the son of God, but as far as surrendering your life to him and letting him be Lord of your life, yeah, I'm not so sure. Let me just say a word to you, okay? Number one, God loves you. You would not be here today if God did not love you. I don't just mean here in this room, I mean here on this planet, if God did not love you. If God gave us what we deserve, we would have all been struck the first time we sinned. The soul that sins will die, the Bible says. Well, I've sinned, but I'm still here because of God's grace. God loves you. And you are being wooed by God to acknowledge the fact that no matter how much you may know about yourself, God knows more about you than you even know about yourself. And God knows what is best for you and for your life. And so by surrendering your life to him, you're not surrendering anything except all your opportunities to make stupid mistakes. <laughs> I can say stupid because Sharon's not here today. When I mean, Sharon's about to say silly mistakes. She's probably watching on... Honey, if you're watching, I'm sorry. But if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you've not yet surrendered your life to him, let me say to you that the only way you're ever going to begin to find any sense of peace with your life is not by trying harder to do your best, not by trying to turn over a new leaf one more time, it's by surrendering all of your life that all of a sudden this life becomes a training ground for you. God will be training you and helping you to become more like the person that you want to be and more importantly the person that he wants you to be. But you have to begin By surrendering your life to him. And take the path of courage. Let me finish with that. I tried to block off enough time that I could really talk to you about this path of courage. How was it that Jesus, as a man, how was Jesus, the man, able to have the courage to look toward the cross, face what was ahead of him, At least according to this passage, there's a lot of answers to that question, but according to this passage, what do we see in this passage? What we see here, I believe, is he knew that God's plan was ultimately for God's glory and for the good of humanity. Jesus understood that this plan, difficult though it was, painful though it was, hard though it was, agonizing though it was, excruciating though it was, was the right plan because it was God's plan. And where do we find the courage? Where do we find it? We find it in the exact same place. We find it in understanding that God's plan for our lives is always, always the best. Even when I don't understand it, even when it hurts. I read this story just this past week about a very prominent man. If I said the name, some of you would know because he's from the St. Louis area. Very prominent man in a large company in this, in this town. He was working his way up the ladder and had moved a lot over his children's years. And he got here to St. Louis to work in the home office, and he told his children, his two boys, boys, we're going to stay here for a while. I want you to be able to finish junior high and high school and graduate, and we're not going to go anywhere. Well, you know how that works out, don't you? About three years into it, he got called in and said, we have a great opportunity for you. We're going to triple your income, you're going to have a senior executive position. You will be on the fast track toward eventually one day being CEO of this huge corporation with thousands of employees. So we need you to go home, tell your family, you've got a week, you're going to move to Phoenix. Wow, what a great blessing to my family. Look at all we'll be able to do. Look at how we'll be able to serve God with, with, with the resources, the finances, and the other things that we'll have. And, and I'll be able to have an influence in my company. More than I have now as a regional manager. But then he remembered a promise he'd made to his boys. Three days later, he walked back in to the office of the executive vice president and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to turn down the promotion because I promised my boys, I promised my wife that we would stay here until they graduate from high school, so I'll just stay in my position that I have. And they said, Well, I'm really sorry to hear it. You are exactly the best guy for this job. now I've been out of the business world too long, but I'll defer to some of you business people. If you don't go with the will of the company, you often find yourself downsized. Just get out of the way. If you're not going to follow what we need you to do, we don't need you anymore. And sure enough, within a month, he'd been told he was no longer needed. There was someone new to fill his position. He left the job six months with no work. But as God would have it, he found another place. He's working very well, still here in the St. Louis area. God has blessed him. But more importantly, his children understood the value that they played in his life. He said, I would have pushed carts at Walmart to keep my promise to my boys and to my wife. You see, that kind of courage to stand for something that you know is the right thing for you to do. That would be some huge moral issue that's going to affect all of the earth. It might just be something as close as in your own neighborhood or your own office, or the team that you coach, or that your child plays on. But being courageous and standing. Where do we find that courage? What is the resource that gives us the courage we need? Beloved, Jesus himself is the resource. Christ is our resource. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. He is the cornerstone upon which our lives are built and established. He becomes our strength. I was talking to a dear friend several months ago about this balance in the Christian life between weakness and strength. Most of us grew up in a tradition where if you said anything positive about yourself, you were seen as being vain. I kind of like the way this shirt looks on me. What are you? Who do you think you are? rock star I think I sang pretty well today oh so you're Elvis Presley now you could not say anything good about yourself because that was a sign of vanity so instead you constantly put yourself down oh no no I, I just not really good at anything I'm not good at anything or you know and we talked about the fact that the reality of scripture is this In and of ourselves, yes, we are nothing, but Christ has imbued his strength. He has implanted his strength in us, and we are strong with the strength of the Lord. Every temptation is not something to victimize us. It's something to give us an opportunity to have a victory. And as the victory comes, we find that his strength is sufficient for us. His strength fills us. And so we can flex our spiritual muscles and stand against the world and say, come and give us all you have. We will stand strong. Often in silence as we follow the model of Christ. Don't ever, ever think That you have not been imbued with the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. That cornerstone, Peter tells us, has been set. And above that cornerstone, the bricks are being shaped and molded together in a great and mighty and powerful house. You may be nothing more than a crumbling clay brick, but you put it with 300 more bricks, you put it together with the mortar of the Holy Spirit, and there's nothing that can get past it. Not a thing. Because together with the Holy Spirit binding us, we are strong in the Lord. And today I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you with all of my heart to recognize the fact that we can stand in Christ take the path of courage, when the, when the path of possessions or power or position or self-gratification or felt needs or desires of our own hearts begin to call us away, we can say, no, I'm going to stand on the conviction that the one who could look Pontius Pilate in the face and answer not a word, knowing it meant his condemnation, I can stand in his strength. It will be sufficient. So many paths. Which one will you choose today? Let's pray together. Father, our enemy is insidious. He watches our every move. I believe that as much as I believe anything in my heart. He watches everything we do, and he is watching for ways to try to trip us up. And Father, if we rely on our own devices, we will not win. We will not succeed. We will fail. But Father, if we can recognize in Christ that He is our greatest resource, Him living in us by the power of His Spirit can strengthen us and enable us and embolden us and empower us and then you link us together with our brothers and sisters in Christ by the mortar of your spirit so that we stand together as a temple to your glory and nothing, no wind of the enemy can destroy it. And we forth and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. So Father today, may we remember who Jesus really is. He's not the Jesus of Pamela Anderson, or the Dalai Lama, or the Muslims, or the health and wealth folks. He's the Jesus that says, you come and follow me on a path that leads to a cross and an empty tomb. And may we, together, as brothers and sisters, encourage each other, strengthen each other, as together we seek